Welcome to Capture Q. Today's guest is Kevin Westall, a founding partner at Pender Litigation. As a criminal lawyer, he's represented clients as notorious as Jamie Bacon and worked on cases involving money laundering in BC. But today we talk about the other side of criminal law, why those in his profession do what they do. We discuss at length the intersection of mental health, race, poverty, trauma, and criminality. So I hope you enjoy the show. We always welcome feedback at captureq.com. But without further ado, here's Kevin. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. So I guess we could start. You're a, you're a defense attorney. I'm a criminal lawyer, and primarily I do defense work, but I do prosecute from time to time as well. So what led you to jump into this this area of law? I mean, I, I love what I do, and I can't imagine doing any other area of law. What I was attracted to was not substantive criminal law. What I was attracted to was the fact that criminal lawyers get to go to court the most. We get to spend the most time in the courtroom more than any other kind of law. And that was what attracted me to it. And so that was the sort of attraction out of law school. So I didn't know that that was, um, why is it that you get the most time in the courtroom? I think it's because, you know, in the civil trial system, you know, it's really a matter of two sides and whether they want, the cost of litigation has become so high in civil Mm -hmm. litigation that there's incentives on both sides most of the time to settle cases. I mean, that's an overgeneralized answer, but I think that's basically the dynamic. And in criminal law, it's not about money. It's about somebody's liberty. So people have huge incentives to litigate against the government to stay free. That's really it. There's a reckoning right now, and we are seeing... You know, not only the defund the police movement, but also, and this has been going on for a while, but criminal justice reform. And Absolutely. I'm sure you're a huge fan, potentially, of the Wrongful Conviction podcast. There, there's a bunch of work that's being done and, and journalism around wrongful conviction. Yeah. And I've, the I've, Innocence I've, Project. Absolutely. And I think, I mean, innocence work is, you know, in terms of the innocence projects that stem from the states, and we've got a fantastic one out of UBC that Tamara Levy heads up. And that innocence work is incredibly important wherever it is. I think in the States, uh, they've got a much more shameful record of wrongful conviction than I'd like to think that we have here in Canada. But the innocence clinics, the innocence project um, programs are just as important that we have them here in Canada as Mm -hmm. in the States, in my Mm -hmm. view. Going to your work, one thing that kind of pops up and, you know, saying this knowing all of the everything from poverty to who your parents are to the communities you grow up in, and everything that leads up to the point where a criminal act is committed. But that said, is it is it hard sometimes to defend people who have done things that are that are wrong in society's eye? You know, I mean, you have to start in doing this work you have to do be able to do more than just um, say that everybody's presumed innocence. You have to sort of internalize that, and you have to really believe in that. It's more than a constitutional imperative. It's a fundamental basis of, of, of a free and just society, and I, I believe in that. Mm-hmm. Um, is it also true that you knowingly defend people knowing that um, they've done a bad thing or caused harm to someone? Absolutely. But, but at the end of the day, it's, it's a clinical profession in the sense that you've got a job to do. And it's to make sure that if your client 
is going to be convicted that they it only happens with the law being um, abided by when it comes to the police and the prosecution. You've got to protect all those rights because if you let those slip with any member of society, no matter whether or not they're someone that's done something wrong or they're completely innocent, then everybody's freedom suffers. I mean, you look at what's going on. I'm happy to, I'm not trying to get away from this question, but I'll, I'll sort of digress in saying that, you know, what's happening in the States with what Trump has done and how respect for criminal justice institutions and the rule of law is being eroded at the highest level. Um, I mean, it's just a disaster. And you're seeing the fabric of society more or less start to crumble down there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, here we're lucky in the sense that, you know, I think there's still a healthy respect for the judiciary. There's still a healthy respect for the work that prosecutors do. And despite a lot of what you see in the newspaper and in the comment sections of, of online articles, I, I do believe in this country we're lucky that people still do we're fortunate that people still do respect the importance of what criminal defense lawyers do. You know, mm-hmm. I've, you know, I've defended tons of people that have done terrible things, but I've defended tons of normal people that have made a mistake mm-hmm. and tons of people whose families work in the criminal justice system and are on the prosecutorial, you know, government side of things. You know, there's, there's an inherent human beings will and do make mistakes. They mm-hmm. always will. And it's more often that I'm helping someone who's a good person that did a bad thing mm-hmm. than I'm d- helping a bad person perpetuate bad behavior. Yeah. And I think that is important. Um, there's a researcher, I think he said of UC Berkeley. Mm-hmm. Could have that wrong. Um, Dan Riley. He, so he's, he looks at I think he's been in a few documentaries, but just how someone gets from the point of a small lie. So, you know, the the classic example of taking a post-stamp from work mm-hmm. and then it's a slippery slope. So, oh, okay, I'll take this from work and I'll take that from work. And there is always context and build up to, you know, what isolated can seem like a, a big mistake or a, yeah. a very stupid thing. Um <clears throat> Is that something that I guess I'm sure you you get to know from speaking to your clients and understanding the context right. of where they where they got to that? For point? sure. I mean, I mean, another way to look at it is, you know, when the public in general, I think, tends to think of what a criminal defense lawyer does, they think of um, cases, including some of the cases I've done, where the defense lawyer is there standing in front of someone notorious. And don't get me wrong, that person, I'm happy to fight for that person. That's my job. That's what I do. But when you do the work I do and when you're busy and you have end up having many, many clients over the the career I've had so far, you just see how many normal, you know, and I don't mean normal in any sort of uh, white cisgendered way. I mean normal in the sense of people that get up every day and work a job and have kids and try to do the best they can for their family and feed their kids and feed themselves and be good to their parents. And you see how many of those people end up accused of a crime. Mm-hmm. Some of them for good reasons, uh, some of them not. But people, <laughs> as long as there's going to be laws, there's going to be people that have a bad day, um, have a lapse of judgment, and 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 break that law. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's going to happen. And you know, people need help. You can't let the state. I mean, our whole system, 
our adversarial system is predicated on the idea that absolutely we hold um, our prosecutors and our police officers and our politicians accountable, you know, within our own, their own disciplinary structures. But the system does rely on an adversary being the criminal defense bar to stand between the state and a free citizen who doesn't have the benefit of a police department working for them or, mm-hmm. or, 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 or a massive, you know, bureaucracy like the crown's office. And the system relies on someone in my shoes or many of my colleagues to make sure that they get a fair trial, that they're mm-hmm. prosecuted fairly. And if the crown can't prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt, or if they uh, attempt to rely on evidence that was obtained unconstitutionally, the whole system relies on people in the defense counsel's shoes to make sure that justice is done. Interesting. That's a good point. In the, in the case of a, obviously a mistake, mm-hmm. um, which can happen to anyone. Of course. It's good that they, you know, we have, that you do what you do and your firm does what they do. In terms of looking at a person who is a repeat offender or violent mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. any of these mm-hmm. things, I think it's a good discussion that we're having today that we're looking at what led up to that person being that way. And absolutely, often it is, you know, broken homes or even poor guidance from someone who is steering someone in a Absolutely. direction it echoes to me the safe supply debate so like number one keep these people alive with a safe supply so users you know that is number one because then we can get them help and so I, I look at it as you know that's what you're doing number one keep them out of imprisonment make sure they have someone there for them and mm-hmm. and that but from that point on how do you think um and and you, this may not even be your job but <laughs> i'm sure you think about it how how do you imagine that we get to a place where we can look at all of those past traumas and all of those unfortunate events that lead up to somebody being involved in a system or in a right. gang or 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 in a place that they mm-hmm. will be violent or commit yeah. over and over and over again well i mean what the you know first of all i'll say this that unfortunately because of the nature of of what it is to be human and the and the frailties of human existence and and the way that the way that the world works there are unfortunately going to i think always be people that are so dangerous that they have to be separated from society mm-hmm. i think it's far far less than the amount of people that we currently incarcerate i think there's no doubt about that uh, in my respectful view, but I do think that there is a reality where certain violent offenders and people that really can't help themselves around that, and they, to the extent that they've been fairly tried um, and punished, and they've been found to be people that are uh, that have committed violent acts and that have put innocent people at risk. I mean, that's that's a reality of our system. But mm-hmm. I think the corollary of of that thought is the fact that the system. I don't believe the system will change meaningfully until the concept of rehabilitation within the prison system is taken seriously. Mm-hmm. And in my my view, it's not. I mean, it, and I don't mean to disrespect the people that work in that field. I mean, I think there's people that do that work really hard within our prison system, with our within our pretrial system, to provide resources. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in exceptional circumstances with offenders that take rehabilitation really seriously, um, mm-hmm. they can they can get through it and they can grow through that like anybody can. Mm-hmm. But I don't, the system is not currently built for people to succeed in rehabilitation. 
It yeah. isn't. This calls to mind a uh, documentary that I watched, and they're interviewing a man who, I don't think it was a life sentence, but he was you know, convicted of a very, very violent murder. Mm-hmm. And they're interviewing him, and he's standing, in, I think it's in Finland, and he's uh, he's got his own kind of little bungalow on this field, mm-hmm. and behind him is a, a metal kind of a magnet with a bunch of cooking knives on it. Right. And they kind of laugh and they go, so you're in here for murder, right? Yeah. <laughs> and it, it really shows the power of a system that is committed to right. understanding the root causes and, to be fair, believing in this guy. Right. Um, giving him the ability mm-hmm. to to feel um, respected and, and, you know, someone has some faith in him that right. he's allowed to cut his own dinner and... People aren't reacting in absolute fear. I think that, I mean, my reaction to that is really that I think that there's a need for a high level of political bravery that we just haven't seen, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, you talk about, you've talked about safe supply, but sort of the related topic of harm reduction. Well, Mm -hmm. I'm a huge proponent of harm reduction, but if you only go halfway with harm reduction, then it does more harm than good. Mm -hmm. And if you only do halfway with rehabilitation, it has the same effect in the sense yeah. that politicians can say and justify to people while we're doing rehabilitation or we have an expectation that someone will be rehabilitated. But really, there isn't really the resources that put in place for people to properly, you know, succeed in a harm reduction model. Drug. I mean, I live in the downtown east side and mm-hmm. I see it every day and there isn't the proper in the same way. I, I guess the bigger point I'm making is that it's very easy for political actors when they choose, when they need an easy win to fall back into a tough on crime narrative that just has really almost no bearing Mm -hmm. (laughs) in, in, in the reality of experience in the criminal justice system, Mm -hmm. getting tough on crime usually means mandatory minimum sentences and throwing more people in jail. And as a direct corollary of that, especially in circumstances where there aren't resources for proper rehabilitation, it means putting criminal already criminalized people together and allowing a dynamic of criminality fester mm-hmm. and giving people a sense that they have no hope mm-hmm. and that the criminality that they've already learned, those neural pathways that they've already developed, mm-hmm. that way of thinking about survival yeah. through criminality is the only way left for them mm-hmm. because they've already been stigmatized, nobody cares about them, and there's no real avenue for them to change mm-hmm. or rehabilitate. In terms of looking at criminal records and employer's ability to ask in Canada, do we have anything kind of like what was happening in the state? Is it, is it something employers can ask or? You can definitely, I mean, one of the problems, a very good colleague of mine and friend, Tony Paisana, who's a lawyer at um, Peck and Company, and he's a fantastic lawyer. He's done incredible work in this area in terms of sorting the research at, aimed at getting to the root at inconsistency around criminal records checks in this country. And this okay. is a little bit different than the experience in, in the United States. But, you know, what you find out is depending on what detachment you go to and depending on what what um, police department you're dealing with and seeking a criminal record, um, certain, certain things that people might wish not to have shared any longer uh, may show up and may not show up. And so, um, 
you know, it's, it's a difficult issue, like moving away from that, from the issue of inconsistency. I mean, it's, it's not an easy question to answer the question of at what point is somebody's prior illegal conduct relevant or not relevant to their character mm-hmm. or their ability and their trustworthiness when it comes to caring for someone's child, mm-hmm. you know, caring for a child or, or simply being not just, you know, coaching or teaching, but just being someone that's going to have conduct of a, of a motor vehicle with mm-hmm. other people in it. And, and it's a, it's a, it's a challenge. I think you get into pretty, for me, it gets pretty black and white when you get into situations where somebody's, uh, were in a fan, where, where something didn't result in a conviction. Okay. I don't, I don't think people should have to. The state wasn't able to prove it. Um, that's not a record that should be shareable with, with anyone. I mean, certainly the police should be able to look at that internally when they're investigating someone. Mm-hmm. I have no problem with that. But in terms of release to the public, you know, I understand the enticement of that and I understand um, the arguments in favor of it. But ultimately, if that per- if the if the police and Crown took a crack at it and they, for whatever reason, decided that a prosecution wasn't viable or that person was acquitted, there's no good reason that that person should have to wear that going forward, in my view. Interesting. Mm-hmm. I have a, a difficult question. Um, October being Domestic Violence Awareness Month, and I think you tweeted about it as well. I have a few friends in law enforcement, and one thing that they say is extremely hard is, you know, you get a whole neighborhood of people saying they saw something. Yep. You know, a man hit a woman. Yep. Please come. Separate the two. The woman says, no, 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 I, I shoved him or, mm-hmm. you know. Um, we're fine. We're okay. See you later. How, and this kind of going to the point of you saying, you know, if the state hasn't proven, um, how do you see that those issues can be addressed? It's, it's, it's a challenge and it's a huge challenge for prosecutors. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a challenge for everybody involved and I have all the respect in the world for the police officers that have to, whose job it is to attend and, and, sort out those situations. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean to be disrespectful in saying sort out, but make sense and create a, pa- a short-term path forward when they arrive at an um, sort of an emotionally charged, potentially violent, there's often children involved. Very difficult, right? Mm-hmm. You get into a fundamental question. There's a common dynamic that you've described where one person is is the complainant or the would-be victim if if it were proven. And they've made a complaint or someone's made a complaint on the behalf, but the victim, who is often, uh, in many cases, a female, uh, has decided that they don't, they wish to resile from that complaint or they simply just don't want the police involved anymore. Mm-hmm. They've made their own decision um, as an adult, fully compassmentous person that um, they don't want the police involved and they've made a choice. And it's, it, it's a difficult situation. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that the prosecutor has a number of things. Uh, as defense counsel, we're, you know, we are involved in that, that decision, but often, you know, and, and, you know, in the best case scenario, the complainant, um, has their own lawyer to help them navigate this mm-hmm. sort of situation. But it's a difficult situation. The police and ultimately Crown have the power to compel them to say, I am subpoenaing you. You're coming to court. It doesn't matter if you want to or not. You are going to testify. That's And that's a dynamic that's real. They also have the discretion um, 
to say um, for for a number of reasons. It could be the fact that they don't feel that they can prove the case. Mm-hmm. It could be because based on a number of factors um, that a prosecution of that particular domestic violence incident is no longer in the public interest. And the situations where that could typically arise is where um, if the – now, any – any level of of uh, domestic violence is serious, mm-hmm. but if it is a transgression on the lower end of the spectrum, for one thing, if the accused person has, for instance, done things to indicate that they uh, are serious about rehabilitation, mm-hmm. uh, for instance, you know, on an out of custody basis, going to uh, and doing serious anger management training and and providing proof that they've done that Mm -hmm. um i mean and some time has passed where the would-be offender has had some separation from that domestic partner and and potentially and most likely the children as well there are scenarios where the prosecution will say in all of these circumstances it's no longer necessarily in the public interest for that prosecution to go forward. That's not always the case. And individual prosecutors do and should have discretion to sort of look at the facts of each one of these incidents and make their own decision. But mm-hmm. um, I think our system is a good one in the sense that it does allow prosecutors the discretion to look at a situation and take into account, take into account the wishes of someone who is, been a complainant or a victim of domestic violence. Now, if the offender has done it multiple times, you know, you're going to find as a matter of experience that the wishes of the victim are going to matter less to the prosecutor in, in deciding in the sense, not matter less, but mm-hmm. uh, the prosecutor is obviously going to be more likely to say, no, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sorry, but, you know, in all of the circumstances and with the evidence that we have in front of us, we have to move forward with the prosecution yeah. in spite of what your wishes are. Yeah. Um, but it's a human system. And as long as the prosecution services in this country continue to, for the most part, hire good people, I think people should have a level of confidence that they take their job seriously. And they, you know, it's not like what you see on TV. And prosecutors don't say, what's my win and loss record? They're trying to do justice. Mm-hmm. In every well, we're not the American system where people are. I mean, there's there's elections and whatnot. So that helps, yeah. but also you know, there's prosecutors and defense lawyers come from all ends of the political and philosophical spectrum, mm-hmm. and it you know sometimes people feel wrong by that yep. because we say you know I'll say to a client, well, we're in front of this judge today. You may not want to go ahead because this judge tends to view this type of case this way or tends to be someone that is more likely to Mm -hmm. uh, detain or, or less likely to detain. And, and, you know, there's the Supreme court of Canada said judge shopping as we call it is perfectly normal and fine for defense counsel to do, but it's this great sort of legal fiction that there's, that there could be complete and utter equality before the law, because ultimately it's a human system. Yeah. The judges, the prosecutors, the defense lawyers have well, different viewpoints and also different levels of skill. Of course. Right. The famous Malcolm Gladwell story of judges before lunch. <laughs> yeah. 
We don't want them, <laughs> which is interesting. I've um, never experienced that. Um, yeah, no, I, I suppose true. I can never empirically uh, <laughs> prove it, but yeah, what you said earlier, just about the idea of, I mean, going back to domestic violence, where uh, obviously when women are trapped in that situation, and then you know there are all of those mixed feelings of they love mm-hmm. the person mm-hmm. and they don't want to see harm and. But, you know, it gets very violent and it's heated and all of those things. Um, at a certain, and I mean, we look, we've learned so much from Harvey Weinstein, R. Kelly, Absolutely. Bill Cosby, so many. And even, you know, uh, just I'm sure you've, you've, you know, met individuals who it's probably hard to go forward with something. And at a certain point, it's good that the system kind of picks up and recognizes that they may want to pull back. They may want to say, no, yeah. you know, I don't want but to keep them safe and the public safe, you know, in the case of a breakup or whatever, absolutely, that does make sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a neighbor who she was, um, she was a parole officer and she was saying, you know, it's just so hard because with so many of these cases, they, there's love involved. And then maybe that woman doesn't have family to leave yeah. to. And, you know, she doesn't, she doesn't have options. Or, or um, the abuser is, is really the, the income source. Exactly. So yeah. it's not only, you know, the risk that the separation that will occur from a, from a prosecution or a conviction is cutting off access. It's also the fact that if this person goes to jail from their point of view, yeah. from the, from the victim's point of view, they're no longer, they they're no longer making money for the family. Mm-hmm. And, and I, you know, I, I just want to make perfectly clear, like in no way am I in my private life, or even at large, like an apologist for domestic of violence. Course, I'm a no, yeah. feminist and I'm completely, you know, I, I can't even, you know, I come from a perspective where in my household growing up, that would never happen, never did happen. Mm-hmm. I never saw that modeled in front of me and it never, and I've, it's never even crossed my mind mm-hmm. in the heat of an argument with a spouse or a partner to, to be violent. But that's not the experience of everyone. And that doesn't sure. make it okay. But, there's a um, there's a cycle of violence that's going on in many 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 families and households, and unfortunately, there's too many of them for us as a society to successfully just cancel all those people. You know, you talk about cancel culture, but talking about it in the context of of people's lives, like there's actually not enough places for the for us to put those people. Like mm-hmm. they, you can't cancel all these offenders from society and give up on them and say, because you've been convicted, you never get to be in a relationship again, or uh, no part of you is decent. If you do that, I mean, number one, it's not possible or really realistic. And number two, it doesn't put any of those people that have transgressed, it doesn't allow them safe passage onto a rehabilitative pathway, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in my view. Mm-hmm. I agree. Um, even even politically, right now, it's a tough conversation because it is. You don't want to excuse someone, no. you know, who's especially if, with what's going on right now yeah. in the U.S. and end up here, you know, looking at racists and looking at. Yep. Do we just, you know, is it McCarthyism? Are we just finding racists everywhere and alienating them and pushing them away from the discussion, only for them to congregate and go find, you know. Richard Spencer somewhere online. Right. Um, I mean, that's the fear. Exactly. Yeah. Or do we include people in a dialogue and not yell and shout that they are horrible and yeah. we don't want them involved in any space? That's a hard one, mm-hmm. you know, and and absolutely they're not the ones to feel sorry for right now. But No, I mean, and it's not really, it's a, true. yeah, I mean, it's sort of this like you're either with us or against us yeah. mentality that 
uh, is sort of a false dichotomy. Like it's not really mm-hmm. real. Like the goal is to cancel the bad conduct and not cancel the yeah. person, I think. Yeah. And for is, no I other guess, reason than pragmatism. Like you just simply can't, yeah, there's nowhere exactly. for these canceled people to go. There's mm-hmm. We can't sort of put them in the plains of Mongolia and have them mm-hmm. roam around by themselves. Like they're going to continue sure. to be amongst us in society. Yeah. Which is a, a neat, um, I guess someone pointed out to me once the difference between call out culture and cancel culture. So yeah. calling someone out, you know, telling them, Hey, that's wrong. You should read this, yeah. you know, article or you know, whatever is is not the same as let's call their boss, get yeah. them fired, tell their wife, get them divorced, you know, all of the above. Yeah. Um, that said, I think that there is an important discussion to to have about, and and we were chatting before we recorded um, the idea of looking at the intersection of you know race, mental health, criminality, how how that leads someone to do something or maybe even not to do something but someone to be targeted for something if you i guess wanted to talk about any opinions you have on that subject um i think that the starting point is um and it's sort of sad to see that there's people we've seen people in positions of power in law enforcement say this uh, in the states and and in different places that, and deny this. But ultimately, I think the only way to start in terms of that discussion is an acceptance that there that systemic and inherent racism in society is a real thing. Like it exists and it is with us all the time. And it's not, it's something different than making racial slurs and having a sort of violent and aggressive point of view towards racialized people. It's about having a white centric viewpoint in the world and allowing that to shape decisions in a way that excludes people that are racialized. And so that exclusion and generations of that exclusion has caused all sorts of harm that includes the kinds of mental health issues that you could expect. I mean, kinds of mental health issues that people from every race, color, and creed suffer from. But I mean, Mm -hmm. it's not hard to understand why someone that has dealt with generation upon generation of systemic and deliberate racism would potentially have issues around depression, anxiety. Mm -hmm. I mean, Mm -hmm. those are natural corollaries of the kind of um, bullied, you know, feeling the very minimum. That, mm-hmm. that 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 people in those shoes would experience, and I'm not I'm not pretending to have be able to understand that experience, but I've certainly witnessed you know people in our criminal justice system who you know are in a difficult place, and then you talk to them about their history, and they've got two three generations of parents that uh, went through the residential schools mm-hmm. system, and you can see that there's a mental if they're even able to talk about it that there are serious mental health reverberations that mm-hmm. that continue to run through their thought process and their psychology every day. Mm-hmm. And does that, I mean, that's, that causes and perpetuates criminality in all sorts of ways. And, and, and that creates a real imposition for the criminal justice system that works on a, are you guilty or are you not basis? And if you are, what should your punishment be? Mm-hmm. If you've grown up with a single mother that was a sex worker and mm-hmm. a grandmother that was a victim of the residential school system and a great grandmother that was in the same position. Mm-hmm. You know, despite the fact that all those people did their best, all of those people ended up turning to criminality in some way, shape or form and turning to addiction 
or finding a pathway into addiction. Mm-hmm. You know, you look at the person that's now before the court having that background and you say on the one hand, well, they've done something wrong and they've broken the law and there has to be a punishment for it, certainly. But at the same time, you have to look at the same situation and say, how did that person ever even have a chance, mm-hmm. a real choice mm-hmm. to live a law-abiding life? So two questions there. Um, I absolutely agree. Intergenerational trauma, mm-hmm. um, we know what it does to the nervous system. We know what it does absolutely. to the mind, all of that. What do you say to the people who will argue, um, for example, the other day someone said, you know, their dad who had a lifetime of crime, a lifetime of serious abuse, a lifetime of, you know, having employment taken away from them for whatever reason, living in a trailer park, beaten by their alcoholic father. They're white. They're told by a man sitting, you know, in Harvard who he's had a wealthy family that paid for his education. And he's now telling this man on his couch who's drinking, who lost his job. You have to recognize your white privilege. He's kind of looking and going, you know, what, again, kind of going back to the looking at, you know, alienating them. Right. I mean, um, well, no, I'm, 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 I mean, that makes them feel. <laughs> I mean, that person, the person you described in that situation, it has suffered intergenerational trauma. It's just exactly. not related to systemic racism. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, perhaps that person, um, has suffered intergenerational trauma, but it's, it's something different than, than, race-based intergenerational mm-hmm. trauma in my view mm-hmm. i mean you got to understand and i want to be perfectly before i go on like really qualify all this i'm 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 giving you my viewpoint i'm a cisgendered like white 39 year old male and i'm not trying to tell anybody the way it is or the way it should be mm-hmm. i'm trying to give you my sense of it based on my experience in the criminal justice system and mm-hmm. by no means am i an authority on what it's like to suffer, yeah. um, suffer systemic racism. I'm not, I mean, I'm, I'm the one that's, and I can, I can talk, I'll speak to this when I talk about, you know, my career and how I just, you know, I know if it's, I, I just know it for a fact that, you know, I think I've done a great job with the opportunities I've had as a criminal lawyer, but I've gotten mm-hmm. better and more frequent opportunities as a result of being a white male. There's just no way around that. But, you know, we can talk about that later on. Getting to your example, I just, you know, the per- that guy on the couch who suffered intergenerational trauma, you know, at the end of the day, his privilege is borne out when he gets into a situation in life uh, and it's a job interview or it's, or it's some other competition. It's between him and another person who's suffered the exact same intergenerational trauma, but they happen to be a racialized person. Mm-hmm he's going to get more opportunities. He's going to be, he is going to be more successful than the racialized person nine times out of 10. That's mm-hmm. the reality. I mean, that's, that, that's, that's what like. And this is something I guess you've seen kind of unfold mm-hmm. in clients and in, in the court, I guess. Yeah. To me in, in doing, I guess, addiction reporting and, and understanding why people use drugs, something that we forget, you know, if we haven't gone through all of that um, lived experience that other people have, is that we could use drugs and it could do something for us. And we're like, oh, that's great, but I don't need to do it again. Versus another person who they do it. They were never held as a baby. They were never loved. Mm -hmm. 
And for the first time, they get that endorphin rush, right. which we get from, you know, normal interactions, saying right. hi to a friend on the street. Sure. Um, when looking at that and looking at how much crime is committed to, you know, help support a drug habit, is that something you think that judges understand these days more and more? Or I think judges understand and take into account our law that is, takes into account addiction as a mitigating factor in sentencing, where, where it's appropriate to do so. I mean, I think you'll find that, for example, in the case of drug offenses, when mm-hmm. you see, a, oh, hopefully I'm not going too rudimentary here for your listeners, but, you know, it's never the case that a judge just says, you get this many years, bye. It's, they have to give reasons for their sentence. Okay. And usually the, you know, the sentencing hearing is about the circumstances of the offense, and the circumstances of the offender. Mm-hmm. And, you know, taking, for example, drug offenses where someone is a drug trafficker, but they've done it to support an addiction mm-hmm. and they're a low person on the chain of command within a drug organization. Mm-hmm. That's a mitigating factor, or at least it's the absence of an aggravating factor. Okay. And people that are doing it out of sheer greed that they're dealing with higher quantities, they're feeding the drug problem in the country, city, province that that the conviction occurs in. Mm-hmm. They're treated differently. Mm-hmm. They're treated more harshly by the system, and appropriately so. Mm-hmm. So I think in that sense, the court over time has sort of taken into account this idea that addiction is a disease, mm-hmm. and that addiction is addiction in most circumstances gives cause for mercy as opposed to aggravation around the type of sentence. And I think, you know, I think that's sort of a more modern viewpoint. I think that's probably naturally evolved in the, in the legal system because the legal system is an area of law where there is a well-recorded history of addiction. Mm-hmm. Like many people, it's a stressful job and there are, everybody has a colleague that mm-hmm. has suffered from addiction in this profession. It's just, yep. it's just part of the game. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that, that the profession has gotten better as a whole at supporting those people and recognizing it as a disease and a harm where people need support and rehabilitation mm-hmm. as opposed to sort of uh, romanticizing the idea of a three cocktail lunch and, and these yeah. sorts of ideas that were sort of, there's some that still sort of romanticize that a time of in the course, legal profession yeah. where people could show up blotto and people were drinking mm-hmm. themselves to sleep every night and, and some still do, but I don't think it's, I hope it's not stigmatized. Uh, it is to some extent, uh, but it's certainly not, it's not romanticized in the way it was. Mm-hmm. You That actually brings up a good point. So there's something called, I'm sure you've heard of motivational salience or incentive salience. So it's a concept in neuroscience of the emotions tied to and the the romanticism tied to a substance mm-hmm. actually increases the propensity for dopamine to be released, which is dopamine's the, the motivating chemical right. that sets you on the drive to achieve the endorphin reward. Mm-hmm. And, and and people in the field they, they look at, okay, well how do we stop romanticizing these things or, you know, glorifying this life? Right. And I think, you know, I'm a hundred percent in support of harm reduction. I absolutely love everybody in the field who's doing that work. But I think that's the one piece that is missing is that there is, you know, the motivational salience has the negative side right. too, is if you think of something negative, then you're more likely to disengage mm-hmm. with it. 
that's kind of it's something that we need to it's tell tough, people though. more and but then you don't want to land on the stigmatizing behavior well, that's well. what i was just going to say and yeah. i think that's the most difficult part is that i think that people in the position those positions have decided for the right reasons i think to to focus on the destigmatization of piece course. because what happens is i live in the downtown east side i drive past Maine and hastings every day to get mm-hmm. to the short drive to work and you know i yeah I see an incredible amount of suffering and I feel mm-hmm. horrible for those people. But I know that there's, you know, when I hear people that are, I hear other people talk about it and they, it's easy for people to talk into really dehumanizing language around people mm-hmm. that are it's happening in that situation. Less, I think it's I happening mean, everybody's still, you know, you you are finding, yeah. I mean the same with, with criminal behavior. There's a lot of people who understand it. There's mm-hmm. a lot of people who go, I think, I mean, this is completely anecdotal and my experience is, and, and I do everything I can to call this out when I hear it is because the police has developed a policy of being very forgiving of drug users in the downtown east side and being very prepared to turn the other cheek when someone is openly using intravenous Mm -hmm. drugs. Mm -hmm. There's more of it going on in plain view of anybody that's driving downtown. And I see Mm -hmm. more and more people that aren't part of the community complaining about it and, and suggesting that it's, you know, something that these people are just choosing to do. And, and really, you know, you just hear really dehumanizing language around it. It's really awful and disappointing. And so to me, it's a reminder that, you know, I accept everything you say about um, uh, dopamine and the concern about the, you know, the full that the full cycle of drug rehabilitation has to, you know, at some level you have to sort of be able to accept that there's nothing mm-hmm. good about putting that kind of poison in your body. But I think that we still are a long way from a level of destigmatization uh, necessary to make a real change. For sure. And it's definitely the circles. Cause I feel like I've, I've gone from the, you know, growing up in Kamloops where people say very rude, horrible, racist things all the time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in, in the you know nineties and whatnot, to kind of my whole twenties being in the harm reduction community, hearing sure. people, you know, very empathetic and understanding addiction as a yep. disease. And then thinking one step further almost about oh, okay, for well, sure. this other component as well yeah. that seems seems to be useful. And and there is a lot of research surrounding when you tell somebody that addiction is a disease, they kinda go, Oh, it's in my blood, it's a disease. I'm not yeah. gonna try to get better. Yeah, um, no, I mean I, I understand that. And you know, I'm not an expert in, in mm-hmm. the field of harm reduction or or addiction in mm-hmm. general. And so, you know, I speak in, I think I'm speaking in the parlance that we tend to use in the criminal justice system as practitioners, but um, I hope I'm not offending anyone. I mean, I, I, everything I say is meant to describe and not, mm-hmm. it's certainly my point of view, but I have a tremendous amount of compassion for anybody that's dealing with an addiction issue. And whether they, you know, I think that those who want to, frame it as a disease as part of their process should and can't mm-hmm. do that. And those that for them, it's not, and you know, mm-hmm. they're free to, to see it that way as well. I don't mm-hmm. think that's the kind of fact that has to be black and white. Like that's exactly. more of a philosophical sort of um, approach mm-hmm. you take to your relationship with addiction. Whichever works for the individual is what I always find. Cause for it's, sure. it's really easy for society and the media, especially to say, you know, it's, this way or it's that way totally but it can be both and it's you know it's nuanced it's not a absolutely it's not a you know one one narrative fits all mm-hmm. um definitely 
Something I wanted to chat with you about, you had you actually just taught a class at the UBC Indigenous Legal Clinic. Um, do you want to talk a bit about that work? Sure. I mean, Patricia Barkaskis and Mark Gervin are both uh, the practitioner leaders uh, that are part of that program, and it's a great program. I'm very privileged that they ask me, along with many other practitioners, to come in and do sort of a few hours here and there as part of their training. But the Indigenous Legal Clinic, I couldn't speak to their entire mandate, but a big part of what they do is they serve Indigenous clients who are charged with an offense, but wouldn't necessarily, usually by virtue of where on the spectrum of seriousness that particular offense falls, they're not covered by legal aid, Okay, uh, these particular offenses. And so it's appropriate for them, rather than be sort of cast into the legal system without... These are people, of course, that are Indigenous as well and can't afford... They can't afford a lawyer and they, and legal aid won't cover them because they likely don't have jeopardy around jail, mm-hmm. but they can still benefit from legal advice. So these legal clinics and there's legal clinics that don't have sort of a, a cultural uh, sort of bent to them, but the indigenous legal clinic is designed to assist indigenous, those who self identify as indigenous. And I think. There's supervising lawyers like Patricia and Mark and some of us that help with the orientation that do a tremendous job in helping Indigenous people who are court users. Mm-hmm. And some of them are people that are heavy users of the court system, and some of them are people that are find themselves in a, in a sort of a one-off, awful situation. But essentially, they these law students, and many of them are Indigenous themselves, not all, act as the lawyer for these people and they take a tremendous, they take on a tremendous load of otherwise self-represented people um, off the courts, uh, off the burden that the court already faces in that regard. And with the supervision and instruction from senior lawyers, they appear in court, they give legal advice, they do sentencings when necessary, they enter into plea negotiations with the prosecutors, um, they even run trials. Mm-hmm. So they do wow. really important work. And so th- what I tend to do with them is just to help them do a, a, usually participate either on my own or with another lawyer in just some orientation to the basics of the court system. You know, how you appear in court, what it is to assist your client in coming to a decision, you know, with advice as to whether or not to plead guilty or to set a matter for trial mm-hmm. and plead not guilty and all those things. Yeah. And I find it to be really rewarding work. Like I've... I love to do work in legal advocacy in the sense of, I mean, I love the work I do in defending my clients, but I also yeah. love teaching advocacy skills. So um, whether it's with the Indigenous Legal Clinic or, you know, in other courses and other venues, I love to do that work. Awesome. That kind of goes to a point that I always think about is that, you know, sometimes I get, whether it's from the CRA or from, you know, Health BC or, you know, any of the kind of governmental offices that send you papers and sometimes yep. I go, oh my God, I don't know how to figure this out. How do I have to sit down and really think about it and read through things and make right. sure you're filling out the right form and all of that. And I think, you know, if I, I've been a researcher, I've been a journalist, I've been in, you know, I've figured out every type of software you could imagine. How in the world is somebody who didn't graduate supposed to navigate, Yeah, you know, the whole system of sure. going through... And Even there's being charged. There's a ton of, you know, there isn't enough, but there's some some great organizations doing great work. Jamie McLaren, he heads an organization called Access Pro Bono that yeah. does incredible work. And they yeah. do work mostly outside of the realm of criminal law. They'll assist with that as well. But in terms of the kinds of legal, you know, I mean, there's a legal aspect to understanding mm-hmm. your relationship with 
a healthcare provider or, you know, social services providers, and they assist with all of that, mm-hmm. awesome. including civil and administrative disputes and things like that. And I've done some some volunteering with them as well and there. That's a fantastic organization. There's also other legal clinics within UBC that do the same kind of work on a pro bono basis that do great work as well. That's incredible. Um, You said that you are running to be a bencher. Yes. Can you explain what that means and uh, why you're doing it? A bencher is, to sort of put it in, in the plainest terms, it's it's like being on the board of directors for the Law Society of BC. Cool. But it's a really ancient and, uh, to my mind, a really heroic um, role within the legal system because the, the role of a bencher, sometimes people get this mixed, it's not there to look after the interests of lawyers. It's not a lawyer advocacy group. Okay. It's an advocacy group to make sure that the public interest is properly protected by the legal profession. Okay. Which is, it, we're a self, like many, like in many other countries in Canada, the legal profession is a self-regulating profession. Yeah. And it's a really, um, it, for that reason, um, it's very important that um, there are people in positions, you know, in venture positions that essentially are the stewards of, of, of the public to ensure that the public is protected, that, that, that the profession is regulated so that lawyers act within the appropriate standards and also that they're put in a position, the best position to protect the public and beyond sort of the decisions that are made at the bencher table that are, and at the committees that are ancillary to being a bencher. Another fantastic role benchers do is they are there and expected to be essentially on call for when a lawyer in the profession faces an ethical dilemma. Okay. And they're in a situation where they're, for example, facing a conflict of interest that they hadn't anticipated or find themselves between, you know, between a rock and a hard place when it comes to, you know, solicitor client privilege and their necessity that they protect the rights and the innocence of their client, but also have an obligation to public safety. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, those are two of many, many, many examples of a way that an ethical breach could arise as there are grains of sand and in all the beaches mm-hmm. in the world, but benchers are there. So when a lawyer is in distress, maybe they're in the middle of a trial, maybe it's late at night. Benchers are there to take a call and to help give confidential advice to the lawyers. Oh, and they're not there to, in doing so, to help the lawyers get away with something, to help the lawyers mm-hmm. get out of trouble. Mm-hmm. They're there to help that lawyer uh, with advice that will help them do their job to the best of their abilities. Mm-hmm. Make sure that they navigate the ethical problem so that the client and the public interest are all um, properly balanced, respected, and safeguarded. Interesting. I can see how, I mean, with everything that you do, it, it would be easy to, for some people, to say, you know, oh, you're just there for someone who, you know, whether it's the wee charity scandal or you know, <laughs> any of these things, um, to be able to call somebody up and say, how do I get out right. of this? Um, do you ever, do you have friends or family members, especially with headline news, that, that criticize anything you do and and how do you deal with that? Oh yeah. I mean, well, I mean, I have a, you know, first of all, I have a really amazing, loving and supportive family who understand what I do, understand why I do what I do. And certainly, I mean, I'm sure that if they hear that I'm defending someone that, um, has made headlines in the 
Vancouver province for all the wrong reasons, maybe perhaps mm-hmm. I'm not going to suggest that they don't, it might not make them cringe for a moment. I, I could be wrong about that, but they'd never, they'd never say that to me. They're entirely mm-hmm. supportive. They, I think they understand why I do what I do and they understand the principles underlying the justice system that mm-hmm. I've, you know, I'm passionate about safeguarding it in my role as defense counsel. Awesome. And I think that that I, I hope and believe that they have confidence in me that, you know, I think defense counsel, you know, it, it requires an, an incredibly high level of ethics, in my view, to do this job correctly. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's, there's, of course. there's, you're dealing with criminality sometimes, sometimes, and I'm not, you know, many times you're not, but sometimes you're dealing with people that have gotten themselves involved in the criminal justice system. They may not be guilty, but many, many times they certainly have problems with judgment. Mm-hmm. That have landed them within the the sites of the criminal justice system, and so it's you can't sort of operate in a pack mentality of of ethical behavior. Mm-hmm. You have to be the one that is there to manage and referee the ethical questions. You have to be there with the client, sort of doing everything you can to be fiercely loyal to them and give them a complete defense, but also ensure self regulate yourself to ensure that you don't violate the ethical rules of our self-regulated profession. So you have mm-hmm. to be completely vigilant about ethics at all times. I mean, I don't think that I'm any more special in that regard than than many, many, many of my colleagues that I love and respect. Mm-hmm. But I think it is a job that requires a well-tuned, uh, precise ethical compass. I'll put it that mm-hmm. way. Just talking about ethics and even just, I guess, morals. I've always heard this term or this phrase, ignorance of the law is not, what is that quote? Ignorance of the law. I've always kind of thought that odd because there are so many things people may not know Mm -hmm. are illegal. And I mean, you could go back to the examples of laws that haven't, you know, apparently there's a law somewhere that if you're drunk, you're you're legally allowed to have a donkey take you home or something like that. (laughs) I'm not even talking about these old kind of outdated things. But but the idea of what if someone did grow up in a household where they were abused and, and they don't see that as, you know, to react in, in rage and to fight or whatever. Again, you don't want to excuse anyone's behavior, but you do want to understand how someone like myself who grew up in, in such a loving household could go, well, of course, you would never hurt someone. And if you hurt someone, you go to jail because it's bad mm-hmm. versus someone who, you know, their boundaries were, were violated or, you know, and how... It's almost like it, we're we're imposing this system and this you know this way of thinking on a person who may not have the same structure the the same way of thinking. Do you ever come across that where someone comes to you and they go, "I I didn't I didn't know that you weren't allowed to do this." Is that ever a scenario? It's not as often a scenario as you might think. I mean, I think sometimes people in the regulatory realm perhaps sort of. Uh, in the traffic realm, people can sort of be confused as to why they got a ticket for making an illegal lane change mm-hmm. at a certain time. But I think for the most part, you know, when it comes to police officers performing, you know, community policing, sort of focusing on the things that cause obvious social and, and actual harm, mm-hmm. prosecutors that try to keep an eye on or are obligated to keep an eye not just on the provability of a case that gets submitted to them by the police, but also on whether there's a public interest at large in in carrying that prosecution forward and defense counsel that are working hard to advocate for their client um, in terms of the overall equity of the violation of a law that isn't 
mm-hmm. helpful or is outdated for for example i mean it's tough to think of an example i mean another another way to look at it as well is that laws that are unjust or outdated can mm-hmm. be challenged for their constitutionality okay oh, cool. uh, and through either whether it's lobbying parliament to remove those laws or it's saying you know t- you know acting for a person that's been um, charged or convicted of an offense that's unjust uh, or unconstitutional challenging that. You know, mm-hmm. we've had our, our prostitution laws challenged in that way. We've had our end-of-life legislation challenged successfully in that way in a case called Carter. You know, there was once, there was a time when sodomy was a criminal act in this country, oh, yeah. right? Yeah. And by a combination of the use of discretion as to what is charged and what isn't, the use of uh, discretion around police policy mm-hmm. uh, and the ability of defendants to challenge the fairness and the constitutionality of certain laws. People within the criminal justice system in a way that's often messy and often expensive are doing their best to make sure that those questions are asked and and that judges are put in a position to answer them around that mm-hmm. kind of thing. But there's no precise answer. And I would say, you know, all of this is really coming around back around to the point that when you really drill down on it in terms of serious criminal offenses, it's very infrequently that anybody could be convicted of a serious criminal offense on the law of the laws that are on our books and sort of say, well, mm-hmm. I didn't realize that was a crime. Mm-hmm. Of course. Yeah. To say that credibly, it's difficult mm-hmm. to do <laughs> as it should be. Of course. Okay, I wanted to get your opinion of Alan Dershowitz in the U.S. <laughs> because he says, he's, he says, I, I think he's a horrible person, but he definitely has a point about, you know, some, the idea that everyone deserves to have defense. Any opinions on him? He's, he's got a bad name, I know, but. <laughs> I mean, it's tough. And I'm not completely, um, he's sort of thrusts himself into the spotlight so frequently that it's tough to sort of get a grip on what the what the latest is with him and and he's mm-hmm. sort of an intriguing figure because it's not really with him it's not just what it's he's saying he's sort of finds himself in the middle of this Epstein situation in a way that's really horrible and I yeah. won't comment on whether or not you know I, I don't know whether that's those allegations with respect to him are are founded or not there certainly sounds like there's somebody making mm-hmm. a credible allegation against him I mean this is just my opinion it seems to me that I certainly get the flavor with Dershowitz that he has an unending desire to be on cable television mm-hmm. at any opportunity. And he certainly found that Fox News is willing to put him there. Mm-hmm. And he certainly seems to be singing a tune that's consistent with what Fox News viewers would seem to want to hear. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that that's a, comp- that's a coincidence. And to me, his credibility is sort of a, an independent thinker is damaged in my view. Oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you actually mentioned the law society of BC. Uh, they put out a press release. So it was, I, I guess, addressing the idea that, um, some people will pretend that they're lawyers and they'll represent people and they, they won't be. Is that, is that a problem in BC? It's, I can't speak to the sort of the statistics on the extent of the problem, but I know that I have seen it happen. I mean, I've been, a, I've prosecuted, Cases where the law societies had to get involved on the other side because an individual who was not licensed to practice law was attempting to act in a lawyerly, in a lawyer type role or as an, as a lawyer, mm-hmm. um, and provide legal advice. I mean, 
it does occur. And sometimes it's in relation to people that are fraudsters. Other times it's in relation to people that would seem to me to have mental health challenges. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's people out there with, there's more people than you think that operate on one level, to one extent or another, believing that the law, uh, certain aspects of the law shouldn't apply to them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you see people that, I don't know if you've ever heard of, of a subset of society that is sort of colloquially known as free men of the land. Mm -hmm. And they're essentially, uh, they go under many different titles, but they're essentially people that don't believe that they claim to not recognize the sovereignty of any government. Mm -hmm. uh, and they're usually in trouble for not paying their taxes. <laughs> I was going to say there was a, I actually had a, one of them approach me at a vegan restaurant telling me that uh, we didn't have to pay taxes. <laughs> and I kind of, you know, humored him for a bit. And then I later saw that there were, there was an article about a bunch of people who had been convinced by these individuals that they didn't have to pay taxes. Yeah. And, and it, it, it's a bit, they're being hoodwinked, you know? And, exactly. and so do you charge those people or do you charge the person who's doing, you know, almost? Well, like it's, a, it's, it, you know, it's, it go, you know, to some extent it comes down to what you, what we spoke about a bit earlier about ignorance of the law is not a defense. Yeah, and so, yeah. you know, getting bad advice from a shyster who, doesn't really have any any of the credentials that you would reasonably require of somebody giving you tax advice. Mm -hmm. Well, if you follow that person's advice, then you're not going to find any defense in the sense that just as you can't show up for your murder trial and be like, you know, Mike told me it was okay to shoot somebody yeah. in the head. It's it's sort of the same thing. Yeah, the, I mean, did Charles Manson? He went. Did any of the women who committed the murders go to jail with that? Oh yeah, they did. Okay, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'm not. I mean, I couldn't tell you what. Actually, one of the one of those. Um, women was in the news recently because she finally made parole after like really in the last couple of months. And she had been some, someone that had, despite the heinousness of those crimes had sort of become a sympathetic figure um, yeah. in popular media in the last probably 10, 15 years in the sense that she was someone that, um, and I'm really summarizing here and someone could yeah. with a few keystrokes could get the real accurate story, but <laughs> You know, someone that I, to some extent, was found to have fallen under the the specter of sort of cult psychology at a very young and impressionable age, mm -hmm. and someone that was probably the uh, was likely the victim of abuse at the hands of Manson, of and so was pushed or influenced into the heinous crimes that they committed. Mm -hmm. Certainly, it's not a defense, but um, unless she was absolutely actually not operating with a with mental voluntariness but i think the bigger question is whether or not and to what extent those factors should be taken into account for somebody that's when, when they they're eligible for parole and that was the situation for her but somebody googling can get a better yeah, yeah. sort of handle it's, on that that i'm willing to, i'm able to provide off the top of my head yeah well and i think that um this kind of resurgence of crime documentaries and tv yeah. shows and all of that i mean i mean people are always going to be fascinated with crime and yeah. uh, it's it's something you know not everybody feels that way but there's something universal about it i, I think that and, and the extent to which sort of the forensic exercise of what goes on in a courtroom mm -hmm. is you know it's usually the question of either did this happen or did it not did this happen uh but is there an excuse for it and then if it if it, if if we're dealing with after conviction, what what punishment should this person receive? But over the course of you know whether whether any of those you're, you're embarking on any of those three exercises, 
you know, whether it's the exploration of motive or, or, you know, looking at mitigating and, and aggravating factors in a sentencing context, it's often that the why of it all, the why did this come to happen, mm-hmm. gets fleshed out and yeah. fleshed out in a public space. And that's, there's, you know, I don't, in saying that, I don't mean to suggest that there's anything trivial or that it's appropriate to sort of think of these things just as in, for their entertainment value, but it's a natural part of being human to to find some fascination in that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think the kind of whodunit aspect of all of it is is really yep, interesting, for sure. intriguing as well. There's also, there was a study once done where subjects, participants could stimulate a part of their brain. And what they found the most was they didn't stimulate the part that made them feel drunk or made them aroused or made them feel, you know, giggly or any of that. They stimulated the part that made them feel outraged. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was, you know, that's such a sign of our time with Twitter and with, you oh, know, yeah. the polarization of our politics is it's just this capitalizing on outrage. Absolutely. I mean, you look at what, you know, people, I don't know this to be true, but it's certainly my opinion that if you, if you steal yourself and actually spend a moment watching what's on Fox News and really what's on MSNBC at all, none of it is really aimed at making anybody feel good. No, no. You know, and whether that's what the news is supposed to do or not, it's a different question. But almost all of it is aimed at directing the viewer's attention at something that they should be, by the television producer's sort of standard, be outraged by. Mm-hmm. And that's what it's that's what it's aimed at. And so, you know, yes. that can't be a coincidence, or I doubt it's a coincidence, mm-hmm. you know, with respect to the, the study that you just described. Oh, There's something course, I think yeah. people, some people outrage as an outlet. And yeah. people feel built up pain or frustration in their everyday lives. Um, all of us, including myself. Um, and I think if someone, it's someone sort of giving them an excuse to express external outrage mm-hmm. in some way, a level of stress release through that. I mean, I, I think, I don't think it's, I don't think it's a great way to, no. to release your stress. I think you yeah. end up, and I'm just talking about the physiological aspect of it from a complete, from a person that knows nothing about physiology <laughs> other than my own. Um, <laughs> well, but it, I, it is easy to identify with and to understand. And you know, I'm sure everyone can kind of, you know, yeah. understand that. Um, I, I want to talk about you before we end, you know, I kind of, I already asked you about how you got in into this. Is there anything that you think is important for people to know about the work that you do? I think, I think we've done a lot to cover it, but I would mm-hmm. say, you know, I think, you know, criminal lawyers, like some other professions, can tend to be sort of in terms of the way they're dealt that we get characterized in the um, in public. You know, we're sort of often criticized. You know, that is until you need our help. Mm-hmm. And my point in saying that is that I guess coming back to the point is that there are good and bad people. You know, there are not many people out there that are totally good and totally bad. I would say almost zero. Mm-hmm. But there are lots of people that, despite being otherwise good and decent people, make a mistake. And there's lots of police officers that are great people that make it sometimes make a mistake. Mm-hmm. They make a mistake in the sense that they get the wrong person. That does happen. And they certainly make mistakes in whether deliberately or, or negligently in breaching, you know, the sort of inalienable constitutional rights of people when they're investigating them for a crime. And there has to be, there has to be a consequence for that. If there's no consequence for those breaches, then none of us really have any of those constitutional rights. 
Mm-hmm. They don't exist if there isn't a consequence for breaching them. Um, and so I hope people remember that. You know, I hope people remember that despite what's happening in the States and how there seems to be a slippage in sort of respect for institutions um, and professions um, in the criminal justice realm, that criminal defense lawyers, prosecutors, judges, police officers all play a really vital role. Mm-hmm. And it's a human role. And it's a role that has evolved and needs to continue to evolve. Mm-hmm. But these are valuable positions and that um, the public needs all of them and they need all of them uh, and they need to support all of those roles and to support. It's not going to help the criminal justice system if people turn their back on policing. Of it's not going to help the criminal justice system if people turn their back on the work that defense lawyers do. Mm-hmm. Or prosecutors. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's not going to help. It's going to put us, it's going to throw the system out of balance and it's going to lead to a system that's less fair. Of course. And so that's, uh, I mean, I guess that's the the message that, you know, it's really a reaction to what's going on in the world. But that, that's the message that I'd want to mm-hmm. sort of get out there about what I do. That's huge too, just in the, looking at, you can understand why people are so fed up with incremental change that they just want to smash the system. Yep. You know, you, you can understand that. But let's say this utopia is achieved and, you know, all of these institutions crumble. What happens then? New institutions will inevitably, it's human nature that they'll be built again, but with less, it's not going to be good. (laughs) And I think that it's hard to, when you're young and, you know, you, you kind of idealize all of these, you know, movements, it's, it's easy to to see small mm-hmm. change and to and to feel again like you were saying that stress relief the relief of saying I smash the window of that target and fuck the system and fuck mm-hmm. them mm-hmm. I, I understand that but if you know if everything crumbles who who currently holds all the power we're having you know rising inequality yeah. and you know now these corporations the higher mercenaries you know ex police officers and then now they're just working for the people yeah. with the power and the money. So who benefits then, you know, and, and it's, I think it's a good discussion we're having, but I think that you're right in that we need to, you know, hold strong to the, the current systems we have. I, you know, it's one of these things where, you know, you, we can't let ourselves be pushed into sort of black and white dichotomies mm-hmm. around. And I don't mean that perhaps as an awkward um, idiom to use in this, in the circumstances of, of this discussion, but you know, uh, it can't be absolutes. It can't mm-hmm. be that you're either sort of a complete believer in institutions and professions as they currently exist, or you're an anarchist. Yeah. It's totally fair and, and right-minded to be, I believe in these institutions, but I want them to do a whole lot better. And I believe that they need to be reformed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and all change is incremental. I mean, I think things happen that speed up change mm-hmm. and they need to happen and there has to be a... And social movements do do absolutely. that. Yeah. And, they, and, and, and I think that there's something that... I mean, I don't want to sound too kumbaya about everything, but Twitter is a medium where everybody's talking, 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 and people really just... The starting point needs to be a whole lot more listening. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Well, I hope people listen to this. Um, anything else you want to add? No, I just thank you very much for having me. It was a really real privilege to be um, on your podcast. I'm a big fan, so thank you. Well, thank you for the work you do. I think it's, it's incredible and it's necessary. So That's very kind of you to say. Thank you.